Hello and welcome to Banking Transform. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. We've had the opportunity to interview many fintech startup and challenger banks on Banking Transform podcast. None are like Starling Bank. First of all, Starling was founded by a woman with a legacy banking background. Not just any woman, but an extraordinarily tenacious woman who doesn't fit the traditional mode of a fintech founder. Anne Bowden had a view of what banking should look like in the future, far before any of her other challenger bank peers even were in existence. What also sets Starling apart is that they have become the first new breed of digital banks to become profitable. With nearly 1.8 million accounts, $4 billion, 4 billion euro in deposits, 1.5 billion in lending, they have doubled their customer base in the past year and continue to innovate at a phonetic pace. We're joined today by Ann Bowden, founder and CEO of Starling Bank, and author of the new tell-all book, Banking On It, How I Disrupted an Industry. On this show, Anne will provide an inside look into the origins, successes, and challenges of Starling Bank. She also shares some great insight into who she is as a person and why this all made so much sense. Welcome to the show, Ann. First of all, I want to congratulate you and your team on reaching a milestone most challenger banks and fintechs only dream of, profitability. During a period that is certainly challenging for both legacy and fintech organizations, Starling continues to grow, expanding both your services offered and customers served. While I am familiar with the origins of Starling, I wonder if you could share a bit about your background and your journey as you've built and grown Starling Bank. Thanks, Jim, and thanks for inviting me on the show. Uh, well, I'd had a long career in banking before I started Starling. I'm a computer science graduate that joined Lloyds Bank in the early 80s. And I had a career that took me from Lloyds Bank to Standard Chartered Bank, to stinting consulting with Price Waterhouse to UBS in Zurich, to Aon Corporation, to ABN AMRO in Amsterdam, RBS in London, and then Allied Irish Banks in Dublin. I was trying to rescue the bank from the financial crisis. I'd gone in there in order to return the bank to profitability. I was chief operating officer. And I started dreaming about the day when somebody could start a new bank, a new bank doing new things with new technology. And one day I came to the conclusion, it's gonna be me. I quit to start a new bank, and that was in 2014. You know, that, that's amazing. It's interesting, as I said, I mentioned in the introduction to the podcast, you're not exactly the stereotypical fintech founder. Absolutely not. Somewhat <laughs> obvious, but you're a woman in a man's world. But even the demographic profile outside of your gender is probably closer to mine than a young Silicon Valley entrepreneur. So looking back, how did you get the backing for a vision that back then, I mean, it's hard to imagine, but back then, few could even comprehend a fully digital financial institution that didn't have branches. Yeah, well, I was in AIB. I'd spent my whole career in technology and banking. And I was dreaming of this new bank that had new technology and new business model. And I decided I was going to start that bank. So I quit my job and came back to London and started knocking on doors trying to raise money. And looking back now, the plan was just too audacious. I wanted to raise hundreds of millions for this bank that was going to have a new business model, wasn't going to use banking packages, going to code from scratch. We're going to start with one line of code. And this bank is going to challenge the Barclays and the HSBCs of this world. And it's going to be totally 
different in terms of we're going to have APIs and marketplaces. And nobody believed me. People thought I was crazy. People thought that, first of all, it's impossible to start a new bank. It's impossible to build the technology. And this woman, you know, has come to see us, who's five foot tall, (laughs) is convinced she can do it. And she's not an entrepreneur. It's her first venture. And all the tech entrepreneurs are very much guys in their early 30s with, with beards. And I didn't look like them. I didn't sound like them. And there's a lot of skepticism about whether somebody that had spent their career in a corporate, that was a banker, a technologist, somebody who spent their whole career grappling with the internal mechanics of a bank, could actually forget all of that, be an entrepreneur, start a new bank, and above all, be a tech entrepreneur. And that is what I had to convince them that I could be. You know, it's interesting. It's an outside observer of Starling for a long time. One of the qualities I've seen in your progression from startup to profitable challenger bank is the fact that you've pretty much stuck to your original vision. You've changed things in and out a little bit, but you haven't really gone after the shiny objects. How do you keep to your, your plan without diverting based on what the marketplace is doing, where investment may be heading, what the regulators may see? How have you stuck to, to what you really envisioned from the beginning? I think there was a lot of challenges because a lot of people were telling me that it was all about customer numbers. I believe from day one, it is about having profitable customers. And if you can combine growth with profitability, you just have this magic formula. I was also quite determined that we had to build the foundations. Look, I'd spent 30 years developing systems and changing systems and gluing systems together and trying to migrate to new systems. And I desperately wanted to build a new core banking system. I wanted to use all the technology that's coming from Silicon Valley and build something from scratch. And nobody believed me that it could be done. I was unfortunate, then fortunate. I took two years to raise money. But when I did raise money, I raised money from a gentleman who invested 48 million as a seed round. And that allowed me to build something that had never been done before. I could go out and get the very best technologist, people who knew about banking, people who knew about systems. It wasn't a group of, you know, 24-year-olds getting together to hack some code together. I could employ the very, very best to build something that's never been done before. And when we started building this machine, we knew very well we'd have a banking license from day one. We never launched as a prepaid card. We never morphed from something else. We set out to build a bank like no other, and that is what we have done. One of the interesting things about Starling and you personally is that you're tenacious. You don't take the negatives personally, and you don't live with them very long. You know, I remember as a salesperson, I always said, I want to take the biggest loss and make it so minuscule that my next victory, even if it was I found $10 in the ground, that became bigger than the loss. Because you almost have to do that mentally or you go nuts. Yeah. But more importantly, you've had that process from the very beginning. As you said, you're out to not build something that would simply get a lot of investors and make it so you can make a lot of money from investors. You wanted to build a profitable bank, and and especially as we look at what's happened since COVID. 
for all but the strongest, fintech funding has pretty much dried up. It's opening up a little bit right now, but the focus is more on, will you bring me profitability as opposed to, can I put on my balance sheet? That's really, I believe, helped you quite a bit. But what's interesting is that beyond the whole issue of being a technology company, you're also a very innovative firm. You, you've put innovation at a very high profile in your organization, and you continue to introduce new products, services, capabilities. Can you talk a little bit about your innovation process overall? I think it's not a process which is outside the organization or something we really sort of identify as different from our core values. We are constantly trying to improve. We're very hard on ourselves in the organization. When people look at Starling, we're very rigorous in how we set about running our technology. We're very ambitious about improving and we're listening to customers all the time. As soon as this lockdown happened, we realized that certain customers were needing to give cards to relatives and volunteers who were shopping for them if they were self-isolating. In 10 days, we launched a product specifically for that need. And the National Health Service in the UK uh, recommended this product to the volunteers. So we responded specifically to a customer need in that crisis. The thing about Starling is our metrics are much better than any of the competition. Our average balances are something like six times the competition. Generally, our customers tend to be people that will use us for the weekly shop, not just the coffee in town. We have real customers with real balances. And the interesting thing is the longer they're with us, the more they use us. And the most recent cohorts are more profitable and more affluent and are using the account more than the older cohorts. So we have a slightly older average demographic. So our typical customer is in the late 30s and will be using us for everything, including the weekly shop and sort of paying for various things for their kids or whatever. So it's a different demographic. It's a profitable demographic. We've also got 250,000 uh, businesses that bank with us. And more customers switch to us than any other bank in the UK in the last quarter. I was going to get to that because that's quite an attribute. Because when you think about it, that by its nature of what happened starts to make you believe that what you've really done is you're starting to become the primary bank. You know, my challenge for a long time was that, yeah, these banks are really good. And you, you talked about the metrics that, oh, they, they claim they have 14 million customers or they have 18 million in line. And you go, okay, what does that all mean? And when you have a flashy card, you have some neat plastic, you have the buzz of the marketplace. I know that I've opened up numerous accounts in the US that were from digital banks, but they were never my primary bank. However, over time, as the services get better and the relationships get stronger and as your comfort level gets greater, you tend to transfer. In my business account, I would say that while I have a bank that holds my deposit balances, my relationship is with PayPal. Why? Because all my receipts come in one way. All my disbursements go the other way. They're offering me credit on an ongoing basis because they know more about me than my traditional bank does. And if I ever need any credit, they'd be the first people I went to because it would be seamless and easy. And oh, by the way, I probably wouldn't pay attention to what may be a difference in rate just to avoid the ugliness of the process. And, you know, you've placed customer experience at the very highest level. But when you look at customer experience and when you look at 
your dynamics of what your customer now looks like and how different it is than what I'll say now is a traditional fintech bank or challenger bank. What do you attribute that to? What, why is it that your balances are higher, that people came to you faster? Is it word of mouth? Is it the process? Is it your product? What is it? It's a lot to do with brand. We've never been a prepaid card. We've never been a non-bank. From day one, we were Starling Bank. And we've always had a very rigorous KYC process and onboarding process. You can get account in three minutes, but we are very, very fussy about that process. So our customers are real customers that do real business with us. And we also provide a whole range of services. You can pay in at the post office. We've also done one and a half billions worth of bounce back loans, which are government back loans. So we have been provided, we have sort of 1.8 million customers. Uh, we have 250,000 business customers, nearly four and a half billion of balances and one and a half billion of lending. And we are growing very, very fast. So we are combining that profitability with growth, which is the magic formula for success. You talk about the growth you've had since the pandemic. I think it was said that you, you've close to double the number of customers in the last year, which is astounding. But when you look at that, so it's a pandemic been more of a, an opportunity for you than a threat? One thing that's very important about this pandemic is that, first of all, some businesses were very, very successful, the digital businesses, and wanted more and more service very, very fast. Some businesses were really suffering, the hospitality industry, the, the restaurant industry, whatever. But the digital industries have needed more and more services very fast. Together with the fact that the majority of people didn't want to go into town to see a branch, they didn't want to um, uh, actually do anything face-to-face. -face. So lots of customers decided that this was the time that they had to make the move to digital. I think we've meet, seen a huge shift to digital across all industries during the last nine months. And as a digital bank in the UK, we have benefited from that. But it didn't come easily. We had to really rise to the challenge. We had days to get ready for some of these things we had to do to support our customers. It was really, really hard, but we really enjoyed, you know, becoming part of the group of people that were actually helping customers in this difficult time. Were any of your innovations maybe not ready for prime time or not as successful as you had planned? Yeah, we always have things that are not successful. We try things and, you know, customers tell us they want them. And then when we launch them, they don't use them. And one of the things we have is we have this wonderful sort of joint account where people can have a joint account with somebody else. We were convinced that everybody that was in some sort of relationship would have one of these. No, they don't. <laughs> okay. Wow. But when we launched kids' cards, cards for you know, children in your family, we thought we had three months worth of stock. It lasted three days. Wow. And this was something like two months ago. We were convinced we had three months worth of stock. And three days later, we all looked at each other and go, we got that wrong, didn't we? That by itself creates new innovations. You mentioned about the joint account. I didn't know the challenges of having a joint account to begin with. But then when you introduced, I'm going, okay, that's pretty good. But I would have had the same situation you did. And, and now that the kids' account works so well, you realize, okay, we're going to do some innovation around that because there's a lot of, of runway for that type of product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is the uh, kids account your personal favorite? Is there 
one that is your personal favorite that you've introduced since Starling started? Well, I run Starling on Starling, of course, you know, so Starling's bankers are Starling. And I have a, I have a Sterling account, GBP account. I have a dollar account. I have a Euro account. I have accounts for my own personal business, you know, and both associates. I have accounts for, for Starling in various locations. I have accounts for Starling in, in this Dublin office, accounts for Starling in its Southampton office. I am a big user of Starling. And the great thing is that I can see all those movements. And I, I'm an entrepreneur. I run a business. And I have all this visibility on my own bank's own accounts at Starling. And I can often be seen to be um, demoing it to various people going, this is really, really wonderful. And they go, oh, God, that's a big balance. And I have to explain it's not my balance. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I know that one. Yeah. Yeah. These test accounts have much better balances than I ever held. That's exactly right. Has Starling or will Starling ever consider non-financial products leveraging open banking APIs or platformification to expand relationships or maybe to monetize relationships in a different way than traditional banking does? We have a marketplace. We have probably the most developed marketplace in Europe. And that marketplace is full of other products from other providers. And we consume their APIs and they consume ours. And we put the consolidated position in our app. For example, you can have a mortgage or you can consolidate your pension. We're really, really good at sort of taking lots of data from lots of partners and actually building it into the app and allowing you to integrate with other services. So we believe in all of this, but we don't think it's... These businesses take a long time to actually generate significant revenue. We have to do this to give our customers choice. And we believe that we will always be on the leading edge of marketplace technology. But these businesses take a long time to develop. Our revenues at the moment come from interchange and net interest margin and banking as a service. But the marketplace is an important component for Starling, but it's not generating huge revenues and won't for several years. A lot of the research we do shows that the biggest hurdle for a legacy bank to become digital or to look like digital, have digital experience, whatever you want to define it, is legacy thinking. And in fact, the founder of Lemonade Insurance said, you know, the biggest hurdle to innovation and transformation is legacy because it's so hard to get out of your own mind. Yeah. As an innovator, but a legacy banker, you really had to leverage what you wanted to keep from your knowledge, which seems to me to be the focus on not only the relationship, but the financial aspect of that relationship, as opposed to simply getting the next funding round. But on the other hand, to move from a legacy banking environment to a technology company, which Starling certainly is, is a real jump. So has the legacy banking background been an asset to you? I had to forget a huge amount of stuff. A lot of the things that I was absolutely 100% sure of was totally wrong. And it being drummed into me how you run projects how you do migrations, how you develop technology. But that was how technology was in the 80s and the 90s. And the, you know, sort of, it was not how things were in 2014. It was much more important that I forgot things and didn't have those prejudices. And I spent a huge amount of time with tech companies, 
working with people, understanding that things were different. I read so much. I had to keep everything I knew about treasury, about balance sheet management, about credit risk, how you optimize business models, the regulatory frameworks, how licensing, how capital works, but forget how technology is delivered. And if you combine the new world of new technology, rather than the delivery mechanisms and how things are developed and delivered, combine that with the understanding of balance sheets, understanding of credit risk, understanding of treasury, and especially payments technology, then you get the magic formula. And I think that's why Starling is successful. You know, I started Starling to solve a problem with technology, but brought with me all the skills and experience of running a bank. A company we lab out of China as well as we bank out of China. When I asked them, do you just surround yourself with a lot of R&D technology people? They go, no, can't do that. Both of them said, we also look for the bankers because we need a balance of knowledge of how a bank works with knowledge of how a technology company needs to work and how they combine together. Who do you like surrounding yourself with on a typical day? You have more fun with your technology group or the people that understand the banking side of the business? I love technology. I was sort of a girl at 18 that went to university to study computer science. I love tech. And when I'm having a bad day, when things are not too good, it's the tech areas that I like to sort of delve into. So that's my heart. That's what I like doing. But I'm a CEO of a bank, so I spend most of my time, you know, worrying about the ALCO, worrying about the balance sheet, talking to regulators, worrying about what customers want. But the great thing is that Starling has a culture where technology are the big decision makers. We have technology at our heart and we love it. And it's a... It's a really, really nice atmosphere where people are still enthused by doing things that are new, really excited by being at the really, really top leading edge of, you know, of king technology. It's interesting. One of my ongoing mantras has been that to move forward, leaders need to embrace change, take risk and disrupt themselves as well as their organizations. Yeah. But you've got to do that with passion. That's that's something that has always drawn me to you is that we're yin and yang in a way in that we're not necessarily the people you would think would be willing to disrupt themselves. <laughs> you went from a, a very stable banking career that could play out the way you would normally expect it to play out and everything would be fine. I was in the banking world as well thinking, you know, there's not much I have to do right now. I'm, I, I'm doing well. I'm happy with what I'm doing. But then all of a sudden I got to a certain age as people that listen to this podcast remember, it was 55 when I said, I don't want to be that person that nobody cares about anymore in this industry and figures that the time has passed them by. So I continue to re-educate myself. And that's what you've done, but you've done it with a real business. I've done it through writing and research. You've done the heavy lifting where you've built a business this way. But I think it's important to realize that anybody at any age with any passion can move to the next level. And yes, it's risky, but it won't kill you. As I think I have a t-shirt that actually says it. To that point, You've recently authored a book that created a lot of buzz in the industry called Banking on It, How I Disrupted Industry. It has been categorized, correctly or incorrectly, as a tell-all book on the origins of Starling. What motivated you to write this book now when the history of Starling is still being written? The first thing that's important to me is that I got so much inspiration and 
so much support from reading other authors. I spend a lot of my time reading business books and I enjoy them. And when things were really tough at Starling, and they were very, very tough moments, I just dig into a book and say, well, you know, sort of this particular thing happened to this entrepreneur and they survived. And I learned about this new world of tech. I learned about how tech companies innovate and how they deliver from books. You know, I didn't have any mentors when I started this in 2014. All my contacts were banking people. I learned about how to build a tech company from reading books. And I love it all. And I've always enjoyed writing. So I've been writing about Starling and Starling's sort of history since about 2016. <laughs> but I thought the time when we became profitable was the time I should write down that story. And I think it's very important that you talk about when things go wrong and when things go right. And, you know, the book has some great stories when things go really right and extraordinary things happen to me, but also has the really horrible times when things didn't go well. And I felt the time was right to tell that story. I get interviewed by journalists all the time. And at the end of every interview, they say, and can you tell us about perhaps 2015? And I go, <laughs> um, um, well. Um, by the way, that was my next question. Just so you know, that was my next. So I guess I'm no different than the other journalists. Yeah. And, and so you have a situation where I, I'd say, oh, these things happen in startups and, you know, and move on to the next topic. And I'm known for being quite transparent and, you know, quite straightforward. And I thought the time was right for me to write the story of, of what happened and fill in that gap. And I've had so much great feedback since writing the book. And I enjoyed writing the book. It's a wonderful experience. And I'm thrilled, actually. It's, um, you know, we were named by The Times um, last week as one of the best business books of 2020. So yeah, I'm thrilled. It should be a textbook for entrepreneurship, not just for fintech and for legacy banking, because it, it's also a motivational story. I allude to the fact that, you know, if Anne can do it, anybody can. However, that's not easily done because you still need the personality that says, you bring up what I'll consider to be your most challenging moment, probably that was public, where your team kind of left you and started a competitor. You know, when you think about it, that's a worst case scenario for a startup, for a person that whose passion and everything else, and you think everything's going down the path. But, you know, I'm wondering, is there anything that maybe is less obvious from the outside observer that really was a challenging moment for you? I think that it was really, really tough going to the banking authorization process. I'd spent years working on this dream, literally three and a half years I was working to get a banking license. And people were telling me, but you could launch a prepaid card and you could have customers. And I was saying, no, no, this is going to work. You know, from day one, we're going to be a bank. We're going to build all the infrastructure. Just bear with me here. We're going to get the banking license. We're going to build the best technology in the world. And then we're going to launch. I pursued a strategy which actually is only now proving the right strategy. But there were many years where I had to really sort of explain to people why we have to do it this way. And those were the tough times. Uh, and there were great times, you know. I spent two years trying to raise money and eventually a 
billionaire in the Bahamas contacted me. I wouldn't return his calls. Eventually, I flew to meet him. Yeah, it's better than him visiting you. You get to go visit him. I like that idea. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. I, I met him. He's a coder. He's a technologist. He really understands numbers and financials and grilled me about banking ratios and Basel III. And after four days, he offered me 48 million for a, an investment and he took 66% of the company. And wow, I'd gone from having nothing and hadn't raised a penny to having raised 48 million pounds overnight. So I was back into London, you know, raring to go, able to hire the very, very best team and build a set of technology and a business in a way that never been done before. So that was definitely one of the highlights. I've interviewed just recently Colin Walsh from Viral Bank, which was the first US fintech to get chartered as a bank. And your story about the somewhat subtle or invisible challenge, which it wasn't in building the bank, it was getting the authorization to be a bank. And there's a lot of sayings around, it's not easy being the first one out there. You weren't following anybody's model, but your own. Yeah. You know, all, all the banks that followed in the UK and globally, at least partially, have to give credit to you because you took the arrows for them before they had to. It's interesting because it's not the thing that you think is going to get in the way that gets in the way sometimes. It's the one that you're blind to or the one that you think, you know what, the regulators are talking a good game right now. How long will it take? And you go, oh, there's a there's a whole lot more than the one regulator that you talked to that said, oh, well, we're going to streamline this. It's not going to be a problem. And even when you consider the fact that in the UK, the regulations actually were advantageous sooner than almost anywhere in the world. You know, and, and actually, they, they did some cutting edge things as well. But you were the first of the first in an area that there wasn't a first. So very interesting. So along the area of investment, recently, there's been some market discussion around the possibility of either Lloyd's or Chase making an offer for Starling or, or you seeking an offer from those for Starling. You've publicly stated that you will not sell to one of the big boys, opting for the potential of an IPO instead. Is there a personal or business preference or, or why one versus the other or why neither? It's very, very flattering when there are newspaper articles about one of the biggest banks in the world, <laughs> you know, um, and it is very flattering and we're very, very proud of what we've done. But I never started Starling to sell out to the big banks. It was to do something very different. I'm very excited about the next stage in our journey, the route to IPO. And I see that as being the next stage. It's profitability. And then the next stage is IPO. And it's a great position we're in at the moment. I want to enjoy it as long as possible. There will be ups and downs in the road from here to where we need to be. But I can't enjoy the, the good days unless there are some really, really bad days. The timing of all the discussions was interesting because it, it also certainly got the word out that you're the first profitable challenger bank. So that's not all bad. To have the discussion of a Lloyds Bank or a Chase being interested or you being interested in them, I'll keep on going back to, it depends on how the whole thing is defined, but it certainly doesn't hurt the IPO potential. But I'll tell you what, it, when I heard about it, you weren't ever cut out of the same mold as everyone that followed. Your desire was not to say, how much funding can I receive? It was, how can funding help me get 
to where I wanted to go. That's a very different view, as you, as you well know. And it became even more apparent in my mind as a result of COVID, where funding for funding's sake became no longer in vogue. And a lot of organizations are looking to partner, be bought, fold, whatever the case may be. You have the tremendous option to call your own shots. In addition, for the most part, being the figurehead, being the person that truly sets a culture for a starling, I have no doubt that the decision won't be made by somebody else. And I have friends at Chase, I have friends at Lloyd's. I see how sometimes organizations such as a starling gets rolled into the traditional bank and, and simply for the technology's sake, and, and all of a sudden the identity is gone. We have examples in the marketplace right now. And there's never been a better time for a great customer experience in a digital financial world. And I think that's kind of exciting. You know, I, I wasn't going to avoid the question, but I think it's, it's interesting because I kind of thought I knew where your thought process was going to be simply by, again, looking at the book, looking at your past, having known you somewhat distantly over the years from the, the very beginning of Starling. But as we are now taking a look back from the back, the past, if you're to take your crystal ball and look 10 years into the future or five years in the future, I, I keep on looking at 10 years and say, geez, we didn't have iPhone 10 years ago. So that, <laughs> that's way too long. But if you're looking five years in the future, what will Starling Bank look like? I think that the UK business is going into the phase of really developing more and more opportunities and increasing its market share. And instead of competing against the, the new banks, competing against Barclays. In the UK, that's our competition. We're applying for a banking license in Ireland, which will allow us to passport it across the rest of Europe. We are really looking at embedded finance, banking as a service. And I think that those particular products will be very, very important to that strategy. Outside Europe, we are probably not going to get a banking license. We'll probably do various technology partnerships. I think that I have no ambition to go to the States at the moment. I think the States is a really, really tough market for a European bank to compete in. I know some of our competitors that have tried it, but there's 300 million people in Europe. That's our first stop. It's better to have great market share than it is to have expansion for the thing on an analyst statement or on press releases. So it's, it's also good because you talked about embedded finance and, and actually what we'll call invisible finance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that what you see as really the next stage of digital banking words, really much more around the experience, but it being totally invisible where it, you're not opening a bank account, you're really having a financial interweaving among everything else I do in a day? In the UK, we have several clients of our banking as a service offering where the customer deals with the other organization and they basically call APIs and we are the bank sitting behind that. We think that particular go-to-market strategy is particularly relevant in Europe. We have a real-time API-enabled bank where you can call all the functions from another app or another service and embedding Starling into other brand's customer journey in an invisible way, I think could be very, very powerful. And the potential of doing that, you know, we have the technology, we are using it, and we're using it at scale. But 
actually transforming the European landscape with this sort of technology should be so, so powerful. And that's very interesting for us. I had a last question, which was playing off the future. And I'm going to say what I was going to ask, but I'm not going to ask because I know the answer now. Would you be at the helm in this future Starling Bank? And I, I just seeing your excitement level, your passion, your enthusiasm. I mean, in my great journey in this podcast, I've been able to interview a lot of people. And the biggest difference between the legacy bankers I interview and the fintech startup leaders that I've interviewed is enthusiasm. I mean, it's infectious. They're passionate about what they do. I want to get off the phone and say, how can I be part of what you're doing? Because I buy into you. It, it ranges from Varo to Lemonade to Wealthfront to Robinhood to any of these organizations. It's not about, oh, it's a business we're doing the extras. No, no, it's all about passion. I just, I just want to tell you what a joy it's been to finally have a, a live interview with you and to be able to understand a little bit more about your journey and to understand really the difference between Starling and, and virtually any other fintech or challenger bank out there. You know, I, I, the title of this podcast is Starling, not your typical challenger bank. And I think that goes all the way from the very origins and who you are to what the bigger Ann Bowden and her organization has become. And congratulations on everything you achieved. I'm looking forward to a, a follow-up interview, uh, maybe an IPO day or maybe embedded <laughs> finance day, or, or maybe when I realize that my personal account now is somehow being run by Starling Bank and I didn't know it. I love all those things. So thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you very much for inviting me, Jim. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks a lot. You know, of all the interviews I've done, this is probably one of my most favorite. And it's because Anne has stepped out of the normal mold of what you'd expect a legacy banker to do. She started her own bank. And not only started, but she started at a time when nobody else was thinking what we take for granted today. Finally, she put the profitability of the financial institution ahead of simply generating more funding. There's easier ways, there's harder ways, and then there's the right way. Anne's done it the right way. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, rated as a top five banking podcast. I generally appreciate the support you have provided since we started this endeavor. If you enjoy what we're doing, please be sure to subscribe to the Banking Transform on your podcast app. In addition, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to me, finally. Be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research for you're doing on digital transformation, dynamics of financial marketing, retail banking innovation, and the importance of customer experience for the digital banking report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, David Douglas. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, continue to expand your horizons and follow your passion. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.